turn to the passage that Dave read for us, 2 Peter chapter 3. We will be finishing up 2 Peter today uh, for, a, for a little letter from the Apostle Peter that in my Bible is about four pages long. Uh, we have spent months going through 2 Peter, so I hope I haven't worn you out with it. But today we come to the last portion of chapter 3 of Peter. And I was thinking of last words. You know, I'm kind of a fan of last words. In fact, if you Google that term, last words, on the Internet, you will come up with some very interesting last words of historical figures. Uh, And that is because we pay attention to these because sometimes uh, people save their most important instructions, their most important insights, their most profound thoughts, and their deepest concerns and their most heartfelt expressions for their last breath. In fact, I was thinking of the drummer, Buddy Rich. Buddy Rich was a great drummer. He died, I think, in 1987. Uh, He died in surgery. They were taking him into surgery, and as part of the questioning of Buddy Rich, uh, the nurse asked him if he, uh, he basically asked him, is there anything you can't take? In other words, she's basically asking, are you allergic to anything? And Buddy Rich's last words were, yeah, country music. So, Paul, you have to come up with something better than that. So, uh, But when you think of another one, the great uh, Mexican bandido, uh, Pancho Villa, uh, he was lay, he, he lay, as he lay dying, he realized that he needed to give somebody his last words, and he called over one of his... Uh, fellow bandits and to draw near and he whispered in the man's ear and this is what he said this was Pancho Villa's last words tell them I said something and then he died Uh, that's a true story and the man had the right idea he just didn't have anything to say in his last moment Uh, Oscar Wilde the celebrated Irish playwright whose wit and his debauched lifestyle eventually brought him to ruin uh, was taking a last sip from a bottle, a borrowed bottle of champagne. In his last words, he said, I am dying as I have lived, beyond my means. And then glancing around the room, he was penniless, disgraced. He, uh, he said these last words, This wallpaper is killing me. One of us has got to go. And he went. So last words, we tend to pay attention to them. And actually... However, many last words uh, before stepping into eternity can be extremely important, extremely significant, and well worth paying attention to. A dying individual will give us a glimpse into what lies ahead, either the glories of heaven or the terrors of hell. And here we come to this last portion of 1 Peter chapter 3 verses t- uh, excuse me, verses 10 or excuse me, 2 Peter chapter 3, 10 through 18 and Technically, these are Peter's last words. He wrote uh, the letter of Second Peter shortly before he was martyred in Rome. And so these are Peter's last words. But actually, Peter is remembering more about what he learned from the Lord Jesus Christ some 35 years before when he was one of the disciples following Jesus Christ in an earthly ministry. And so Peter is remembering the words of the Lord Jesus Christ. And so the Holy Spirit does not miss an opportunity to write down last words. The last words of Peter here, they're written down. And of course, as we reflect on the last words of Jesus Christ, when we think of Jesus telling his disciples his last words are formative 
for us as a church family, for us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ. Think about it. He wanted to teach his disciples. He was releasing them unto ministry. And in fact, they were so caught up in the person of Christ that they changed the then known world in less than 125 years. Christianity spread from that small group in the upper room in Jerusalem on the day of Pentecost throughout the known empire, the Roman Empire at that time and beyond. Jesus didn't say, organize a political action committee. He didn't say to remember to work for justice and visualize world peace. He didn't say be tolerant of one another, save the whales, celebrate diversity, or commit random acts of kindness. He said none of that. He didn't say arm yourselves and take dominion over Rome. What he did say was clear as bright sunlight, one writer wrote, on a cloudless morning. There was nothing obscure or hazy about his final instructions. And so as we come to Peter's last words, Peter was at the end of his life fulfilling these instructions that Jesus had given him some 35 years before. In Acts chapter 1, we get these last words. Therefore, as they had come together, they asked him, saying, meaning the disciples, Lord, will you tell us at this time or when you will restore the kingdom to Israel? And he said to them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the Father has put in his own authority, but you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be my witnesses to me in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the end of the earth. And, of course, that echoes the Great Commission we find at the end of chapter 28 of the book of Matthew. And so Peter has lived his life since that time that Jesus spoke those words to him in total passion, obedience, and direction of fulfilling what Christ has told him to do. And there is such a, a dramatic contrast between Peter before the day of Pentecost and the day, and the day after when the Holy Spirit indwelt him. He preached that sermon on the day of Pentecost. Over 3,000 were saved, and he was on his way. God was using him and the others as the word spread about the good news of Jesus Christ. So in this passage, as we come to 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 10 through the end of this book or this letter, there are three words that are really central to this passage, and they are translated looking forward. It appears primarily in verses 12 through 14. It is a word that's also translated in Luke chapter 12 to expect, and it's the idea of we're waiting for Christ to come back again, and yet we are not uh, waiting is not a passive activity. We are occupying as we wait for him. Peter turns from the scoffers. Remember early in chapter 3, he reminds the believers, and he calls them beloved ones. In fact, in this chapter, he calls them beloved four times, and that is the Greek word agapetoi. We talk about agape love. Remember in the New Testament, the word that's translated love for us is four different Greek words, and agape is the word that's the, used of Christ's death for us on the cross of Calvary. It is that, that love that is unconditional. It is that love, that God-type love that is sp spread out to us through Christ Jesus. And so he calls us the beloved ones. So if you are a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, you are beloved by God. I used to <clears throat> listen to a radio preacher when I was a brand new Christian, J. Vernon McGee, and some of you may still listen to him. In fact, I think, you know, he's been in heaven many, many years, but his radio ministry around the world is one of the largest radio ministries that there are. It's amazing how God has used J. Vernon McGee, but he had a southern accent, 
and uh, kind of a down-home kind of way of presenting things. And actually, if you knew the truth, J. Vernon McGee was a graduate of Dallas Theological Seminary, and he was a Hebrew scholar, and yet he didn't uh, make you feel dumb when he preached, did he? And he always called you beloved, beloved ones, and that used to irritate me for some reason. Beloved, quit calling me beloved. And then he explained it one day that I call you beloved. Some of you I don't really like, but you are beloved because Jesus Christ loves you. And that's what Peter is saying here. You are the beloved ones, the agapatoi. You are the beloved ones. And he does that in contrast to these false teachers in chapter 2. He wants there to be no confusion about who's being addressed here. And so he's addressing uh, these believers here. And so he turns from these scoffers, mockers, false teachers, and he turns to the saints. And he presses home our responsibilities in light of verse 10 that we looked at a little bit last week. But in the day of the Lord will come like a thief in which the heavens will pass away with a roar and the elements will be destroyed with intense heat and the earth and its works will be burned up. Uh, The day of the Lord is a technical term for that final consummation when righteousness reigns completely, Satan And the false prophet and the Antichrist are cast into the lake of fire. There is this final judgment at the great white throne of judgment. And Christ will reformat what we see and what we know in our universe. We get the new heavens and the new earth. Everything that is material will be destroyed. Everything will be revealed. In fact, that last word in my my version has that the earth and its works will be burned up. That is one of the most difficult words in all the New Testament to study. And some of your versions or translations may have will be revealed or will be exposed. And so if you want to get your Ph.D. in theology, you could just do your, the- your thesis or your dissertation on that one word. And you would join a, a band of other people who are, who are trying to discover what that is. But nevertheless, the point is, is that there will be consummation. There will be a finality to God's plan here. And there will be a launching into eternity future. Remember, he has already said, the scoffers say, you know, when's he going to return? Christ is never going to return. And there's not going to be any judgment. We go by day by day by day. And yet God is reminding them early on in chapter 3 that the flood of Noah, remember that? He destroyed the living creatures on the earth. He saved some, just the seven and a few of the animals to repopulate the earth. And there it's talking about humankind. It's the same word for earth that is used in John 3.16, for God so loved the world. He's not talking about this firmament, this physical planet. He's talking about people on that earth. But this time he's talking, it's a different word that's translated earth or world. And he is telling us that even the firmament, this earth will be reformatted, uh, depending on how you translate that one word, or burned up. It'll be changed, nevertheless. Our whole universe will be changed. So the question is, in light of that verse, how then shall we live? How then shall we live? Do we live like the scoffers who just go day to day and say, ah, you know, I've got all my life here. You know, this is the first day of the rest of my life, and I'm just going to enjoy. It's going to be the same day after day. How then shall we live? Well, for the believer in Jesus Christ, in verses 10 through 13, specifically 11 through 13, there is the future shock in verse 10, but we are to live expectantly. Live expectantly. Look at verse 11. Since all these things are to be destroyed in this way, what sort of people ought you to be? And he, that's the question he's asking. It's kind of a rhetorical question because he answers it in holy conduct 
and godliness, looking for, there's that word, expecting, looking forward, anticipating. We are to be expectant. That's the kind of people we are to be, to recognize that there will be a consummation. It may be a million years from now, but the believer lives in light of what is coming, that God has promised, he is faithful, he is going to complete it. Remember, out of his mercy and patience, he is what some would call delaying his judgment for the time being because he wants people to come to repentance and know Jesus Christ as Savior. So live expectantly. We are to live for, verse 12, looking for the, the hastening of the coming day of God, because of which the heavens will be destroyed by burning, the elements will melt with intense heat. But according to his promise, we are looking for, there's that word again in verse 13, the new heavens, new earth, and notice the definition of the new heavens and new earth, in which righteousness dwells. Righteousness is an elusive issue, isn't it? Bill even talked about that a little bit in our salvation, in the doctrine of salvation. We are not righteous in and of ourselves. In fact, one of the key ingredients of our salvation is Christ imputed, deposited to our credit his righteousness. We can only stand before a righteous, holy God, perfect God, in Christ's righteousness. And so this new heavens and the new earth, this righteousness dwells. Notice this. I believe this is Jesus Christ. His righteousness dwells. And if you're a believer in Christ, you will be with him where this righteousness dwells. So we live expectantly. We know that we are moving from birth to death. Uh, We have those two dates are set, aren't they? Your birth, you have a birthday, you know the date. We don't know the date of our death, but we know that it is coming because all people die. And so those two dates are fixed, at least in the sovereign's mind, in God's mind. But what about this part in between? How then shall we live? What difference does this make? What does your day-to-day life look like between that fixed date and we know this other fixed date? Live expectantly. Look forward to. And he tells us, excuse me, here that we are also not only to live expectantly, but to live diligently in verses 14 through 16. Therefore, look at verse 14. Beloved, there's that word again. You are the agapitoi if you're a believer. Since you look for, there's the third occurrence of that word. Look for these things. Be diligent to be found by him. Diligence has this idea of hard work that we pursue, that we are very diligent. Now, uh, all of you have some kind of a vocation or a work ethic, and you are very diligent when you apply yourself to what you believe you are called for each day. And this is the idea of being diligent in character. Notice in peace. Isn't that an interesting term? In light of verse 10, where we're looking forward to the, what we would call the destruction of the whole universe, and we're to live in peace, and that means in rest with the sovereign God. It doesn't mean peace with one another, although that's a result of being at peace with God. But we are to live in peace and then to be spotless and blameless, it tells us here. And, of course, the believer in the Lord Jesus Christ To be without sin means that Christ has imputed his righteousness to us and that we have a responsibility to live in diligence, in spotless and blamelessness. And then verses 15 and 16, 
that we be diligent in the communication of the good news of Jesus Christ or salvation. Uh, in verse 15, he says, in regard to the patience of our Lord as salvation, he's already mentioned that, that as we grow in Christ, we will, the result will be that our salvation, that we're talking about this sanctification process, that I am being set apart unto holiness, I am being saved from the very power of sin. And then he refers to our beloved brother Paul, the Apostle Paul, according to the wisdom given to him, wrote to you, as in also all of his letters, speaking in them of these things, in which are some things hard to understand, and for every preacher or Bible teacher, that is an encouragement. If Peter had a hard time understanding Paul, what a great thing. You know, it means we're not really dummies. So, uh, which the untrot and unstable distort as they do the rest of scriptures to their own destruction. This passage uh, written by Peter, probably about 62 AD, is the earliest attribution we have that what Paul wrote was scripture. This is very important because liberal theologians say that a lot of the books that are attributed to Paul weren't written by Paul and were attributed later in like the third, second and third centuries. And yet here Paul, within 30 years of Christ or 35 years of Christ's ministry on earth, attributes Paul's writings as scripture, that they are scripture. And so, and he's talking about salvation. So he is uh, just uh, commending this, this apostle Peter. But he tells us here that they will, the untaught, the unstable will deny that. And he's already revealed to us in chapter 2 the false teaching. Remember, Second Peter is to warn the church about false teachers who come into the church. He's warning us to live faithfully in difficult times. We have the, the word of God in chapter 1, and we have the hope of the second coming of Christ in chapter 3. But untaught refers to one whose mind is untrained and undisciplined in the habits of thought. Uh, unstable refers to one whose conduct is not properly established on the truths of God's word. So we are to live diligently in character and in the communication of the gospel. Uh, do you have family members who don't know Christ as Savior or friends or coworkers or acquaintances and neighbors? I know I do. And uh, my heart beats for the fact that they need to know Jesus as their Savior. And perhaps there's someone here today who doesn't know Christ as their Savior, has never received the gift of salvation. We are to be diligent in sharing and communicating the great hope we have in the Lord Jesus Christ. So live expectantly, live diligently, and then in verses 17 and 18, as he concludes this letter, live securely, live securely. Look at verse 17. You therefore, beloved, the agapitoi, knowing this beforehand, be on your guard. Be on your guard. Here's a warning to these believers that Peter's writing to, to be on your guard. And again, he used the word knowing. Uh, throughout this little letter, there's some 17 occurrences of two different Greek words, but it's translated knowing or knowledge or be of this mind. And so it's a very important because our belief system starts in our brain. Uh, the Greek word for knowledge usually connotes a progressive experiential and personal knowledge. It is knowledge that you can grow. We need to grow in our actual personal knowledge of Jesus Christ. Such knowledge is the greatest protection against false teachers. One of the prominent themes in this epistle is Peter's exhortation for us to attain a fuller, more complete knowledge of Jesus Christ. Here in verse 17 says, be on guard. Why are we to be on guard in verse 17? 
He says, be on your guard so that you are not carried away by the error of unprincipled men and fall from your own steadfastness. It doesn't mean you'll lose your salvation, but you will be uh, carried by every wind of trickery and false teaching if you do not know the word. So be on your guard. And then he tells us to be growing, to be growing. But grow in what? The grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We need to be growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. When I first uh, came here, there was uh, an elderly gentleman long since gone. I made a suggestion about what uh, one of the classes should be studying, and he said, oh, no, we've done that a number of times. We know it all. And uh, I just, oof, you know it all. Uh, So, you know, there's this idea that if you stop growing, you think you've arrived. And one thing about studying the Word of God is it should tell you how much you don't know, (laughs) that we never do arrive in this life. A.W. Tozer, the great devotional writer and pastor, wrote about the curse of self-righteousness, and that's what that is. Self-righteousness is terrible among God's people, Tozer writes. If we feel that we are what we ought to be, then we will remain what we are. We will not look for any change or improvement in our lives. This will quite naturally lead us to judge everyone else by who we are. This is the judgment of which we must be careful. To judge others by ourselves is to create havoc in the local church. He goes on to write, self-righteousness also leads to complacency. Complacency is a great sin. Some have this attitude. Lord, I'm quite satisfied with my spiritual condition. I hope one of these days you will come. I will be taken up to meet you in the air, and I will rule over five cities, Uh, unquote. These people cannot rule over their own houses and families, Tozer writes, but they expect to rule over five cities. They pray spottily and sparsely. They don't attend things. They aren't engaged with the word, uh, but they expect to go zooming off into the wild blue yonder and join the Lord in triumph with the victorious saints. We need to be praying, Lord, keep us from self-righteousness. Show us our sin and the need for continual growth. If revival is to come, I've been just reading a book called Revival and Revivalism, The Making and Marring of American Evangelicalism, written by Ian Murray. And uh, it's amazing when you read about what true revival can do, not only in an individual's life, but in families, in churches, in communities, what God is doing when the Holy Spirit is unleashed upon his people, when we pay attention to his word. When revival is to come, Tozier writes, it must begin with me, and it won't start unless I'm constantly reminded of my need, of my need. And so we are to live securely by being on guard, by growing in the grace and knowledge of the Lord Jesus Christ. So we are to live, <clears throat> excuse me, expectantly, diligently, securely, because God's word is true, and we are reminded of the hope we have in the Lord Jesus Christ, that no matter how weird it gets out there in the media, in a political year, in upheavals around the world, we have the hope of the Lord Jesus Christ coming our way. In 1966, uh, the World Congress on Evangelism was held in Berlin at that time, West Germany, Dr. Billy Graham spoke of the need in Christian work for a life marked by gentleness, kindness, love, and forgiveness, a life that will mark us as different from the world. 
he writes that Christians should also be ministers and we should be holy people. He illustrated this point by a story out of uh, Christian or uh, evangelical history in America. H.C. Uh, Morrison, who ultimately was the founder of Ashbury Theological Seminary, and he was a farm worker cultivating a field, and he looked down the road and he saw an old Methodist circuit rider coming by on his horse. This young uh, farmhand, H.C. Morrison, had seen the preacher, preacher before, and he knew him to be a holy man. As he watched the saint go by, he felt the power of his godly presence way out in the field. And uh, Billy Graham says, Such a sense of conviction for sin came over Morrison that, fearful for his soul, he dropped to his knees, and there between the rows of corn alone, he made his resolve that Christ would come into his life. As he concluded the story, Billy Graham earnestly prayed, O oh God, make me a holy man, a holy man. Second Peter is a letter that constantly and consistently encourages us to be a holy people, that there is life change to be had, that we represent Jesus Christ through our character, through our behavior, through our attitudes, and through our actions. At times it means fighting off the destructive influences of false teachers, especially as it relates to the person and work of Christ. At other times, it means standing up courageously when people scoff or mock at our faith, whether it's at the workplace, at the school, or in our neighborhood, or perhaps in our own families. At other times, it means being uh, courageous enough to stand up to a culture that is ridiculing us for our beliefs and for what we live for. And as a follower of Christ, this hope in the second coming of Christ and the final consummation of the world and his plan and his launching us into eternity future, it is time for us to grow up and understand and apply the doctrine that Peter is talking about here. The word of God presents the teaching of the second coming. In fact, it occurs more in the New Testament than almost any other subject to offer us future hope and to motivate us to recognize that we anticipate, we live expectantly, we live securely, we live diligently. And we have a mandate in Scripture to spread the Word of God wherever we are. Uh, make disciples as you go, whether it's going to school, going to work, going on a vacation. Make disciples as you go, Jesus said. And so we can rejoice in the fact of the amazing grace of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ as we anticipate his return. And our holiness is only because of his absolute holiness in our lives. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, uh